Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The text this morning is in Hebrews 12, just uh, two verses, one and two. It's uh, translated for us from the ESV in just one long sentence. It was, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, Tim Murray was telling me that when I preached on Hebrews 11, just the first three verses in that chapter, his daughter Emmeline got really excited. When she opened the order of worship and she saw how few words there were in the text, she naturally assumed that short text meant short sermon. You see, sometimes that uh, maturity is really just the loss of innocence, and I think this bears it out, because you know, of course, that there is no relationship between the size of the text and the length of the sermon, and you've reconciled yourself to that reality. The text is short. Uh, The sermon, we'll just see what happens. Here's a text, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Probably for as long as as we've been meeting here to worship, I've wanted to preach a sermon about running a race because the setting is so apropos with a, a racetrack in front of us. But you can't just preach what you want to preach. You have to wait until it comes up in the text. And finally, uh, that moment has come. Running the race. Let us run the race that is before us. This is the admonition we're given by the author of Hebrews. And for those of you who still hold out a hope that, that the mysterious author of, of the book of Hebrews is Paul, I mean, this would help you, right, in that belief, because it's Paul in his epistles who uses this metaphor of the race in talking about our life in Christ. Of course, it's a familiar metaphor to us. We, We talk about this constantly, the idea that life is running a race, right? You reach the finish line only when you die. You know, you've got to run your race, that sort of thing. Um, I actually grew up in the, uh, the, household of of a father who was well acquainted with running races. Uh, My dad, before he was a a corporate CEO, and before that he was a teacher, but even before that, he was a track star. And it was that experience that he had that that shaped the way he saw everything else. Uh, He would have to give speeches all the time, and whenever he would, would motivate people, he would always talk about his experience running a race. I heard the story hundreds of times. Uh, so that its its details are burned into my mind. There's the moment where he's running around the track and, and he starts to feel like, uh, you know, he's winded and everything and he can't go forward, but then suddenly something happens and he gets a second breath and he can keep going. And as he goes and he sees the finish line, uh, his body is aching and it's hurting and he's asking himself, does it hurt? Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts, but not it doesn't hurt as bad as, as winning will feel good. Something like that. Um, I actually called him as I was preparing the sermon just to, to, to reminisce about that story that I'd heard so many times. And lest you think I don't research these sermons, I really do. Here you can phone the source. And my dad wanted you to know 
that he wasn't just like a runner. He was actually an all-state track man in high school. And that in 1963, he was voted the most valuable track man at McNeese State University. I got the impression that of all of his accomplishments in life, most valuable track man is one of the ones that, that he holds most dear. Now, some of you know me better than others, but I think most of you realize, just looking at me, I don't run. <laughs> I don't run much. Even if someone were chasing me, I think I would say, well, it's my time. <laughs> you know, can't run. I guess I just have to get killed. Um, I don't run. But because I grew up with this story, when I grew up hearing about this, in a weird way, like the psychology of the experience was ingrained in me. So that I feel like even though I don't run, I know some of you do, some of you really, really do, um, I can't share that experience, but I feel like I could counsel you on the psychology of it because I've just absorbed the example. And I think that, that maybe it's, it's the appeal of that metaphor, of that experience, whether you run or not, in, in everyday life, you run in, in life writ large. Right? You run. You're called to run. This is an experience that all of us have. We are running a race. Right? A race, if you think about it, is really just the application of focus over time. Just focusing on one task over time until it's over. So to finish requires endurance, and there's a prize at the end. When Paul talks about running the race, all of those elements are there in the way that he speaks about running our race. Listen to some of the things Paul says. So this is in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run your life as if there were a prize waiting for you at the end. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, as he's looking back on his life of faithfulness, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a race to be run, and that, that race is the life of faith. He equates running the race well with being faithful to his calling in life. And he sees that God, the righteous judge, will reward him at the end of the race. Then in Philippians 3, and this is the one if you want to, to keep your fingers stuck somewhere in your Bible, Philippians 3 is a good place to do that because we'll come back to Philippians several times. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's focus. I forget what lies behind. I don't pay attention to what's behind me. I'm focused on the forward, on, on what lies ahead. That's where my eyes are fixed. And it's the same kind of sentiment that we see in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Right? Set aside everything that obstructs and look to Jesus. Focus on Him and run your race. If you're going to run, you have to throw off some weight. Right? You need to be lean and mean in order to endure in the race. That's part of the focus. But he says you should cast aside the weight that, that 
that holds you down, that hinders you. Right? You should toss that aside. When you think about the things that prevent you from running the race of discipleship, not all of those things are bad things. There are things that are good in and of themselves, and yet they are hindrances. They do keep us from following after Christ. And those things should be sacrificed. It's not that they're bad or that they're evil, just that they're getting in the way. And if your focus is on Christ and on following Him, then you will have to set aside good things as well as bad. You will have to sacrifice things that are good. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial is part of running the race, following after him, giving things up for the sake of Christ. Some things are good in themselves, but they get in the way. Some things are sinful. They're not good at all. And those are the clingy things. Those are things that's actually hard to, to get out of your life. Right? It, they, they hold on. They cling so closely. And yet, sin too, we must set aside. We must unloosen its grasp on us if we're going to follow after Christ. We have to put off the old self, in other words. The old self, which, which is corrupt. Which is given over to deceitful desires and instead put on this new self, which is renewed in the image of Christ. If we're going to run, we have to set aside our sin. We can't follow Christ and still harbor love for things that, that frankly, are against Him. The good things that we allow to get in the way of our discipleship and the bad things that we nurture in our hearts, these are the things that prevent us from following after Christ as we should. They keep us from running the race. They slow us down. These are things we must set aside to follow after Him. We should do it, we're told at the beginning, because of this great cloud of witnesses. Because there is this great cloud of witnesses, we should set aside this weight. We should, should unloosen the grip of sin. So think about those witnesses. So we worked through Hebrews 11. like We were given a catalog of heroes of the faith. People whose lives exemplified this ideal of sacrifice for good things to come. They gave up good things in this life for the hope of good things to come. These are the witnesses that we're surrounded by. And they're described as, as a great cloud, a mighty host of witnesses. Not just a handful of people. Not like a thin red line of faithfulness running through redemptive history, but a host of faithful witnesses. And because of them, we should run in this way. But how do you think about those witnesses? How are we to think about these people? It seems to me there's two ways. One way would, this, one, one way would be this. One option would be to think that the witnesses are like spectators at the race. You imagine yourself on the track running your race, and of course on the side by the, by the ropes are all of these spectators, all of these people who are watching you, their eyes are on you. They are cheering you on in the race towards victory. And it could be that all these heroes of the faith are there standing behind the tape cheering for us. And keep running, keep running. There's a prize waiting for you. We're looking at you. We're watching you. 
Don't let us down. We ran the race. We endured to the end. Don't disappoint us. Those witnesses stand, as it were, uh, on the sidelines of heaven looking down on earth as we run our race. And because of uh, our sense of obligation and our not wanting to let our heroes down, we should endure. We should turn our back on our sin, although it is delightful because Moses and Abraham are watching and we don't want them to see us this way. That's one way of thinking about it. Not, I think, the right way to think about it. There's a second option, that the witnesses are the runners who've run the race before us. What do they bear witness to? What is the value of their testimony? It's not that they're bearing witness to us and how we run the race. They're bearing witness to Christ and how he ran the race. They all ran. right? They all endured. They all had to throw off weights that set them back. They all had to... to uh, break the power of sin in their life. But all of that running and all of that sacrifice was, as it were, a shadow of the race to come. Whatever those heroes gave up, they gave up as a sort of token sacrifice that, that foreshadowed the great sacrifice that Jesus was to make. Right? Their lives literally were testimonies, testimonies to the race of Christ, the race that Christ would run. So they bear witness not to us, but to Christ. They're not looking at us, shaming us into discipleship. Rather, their example encourages us to keep our eyes focused where their eyes were focused. They ran the race looking to Jesus, literally looking forward into time towards Jesus. And we too, just as, as they looked forward to him, we too must run our race looking forward to him. There's a a term in theology, we sometimes say that that what we aspire to do in theology, and this is going to sound bad, but, but, but realize this is meant in a very humble way, that what we aspire to do is to think God's thoughts after him. We know. That, that we're never going to open up the systematic theology textbook and, and read enough pages and go, oh, I'm now thinking like God. The idea is we follow after him. Right? We're attempting not to think for ourselves, but to think God's thoughts after us, to value his thoughts higher than our own. That's the idea. And if that's true in the way that we think, maybe it would be fair to say that in the way that we live, what we aspire to do is to run Christ's race after him. To run Christ's race after him. So if you're going to run Christ's race after him, you must remember that he runs in and through you. That he runs in and through you. You see this way that Jesus is described. We're told that we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter, uh, if your mind like mine works in, in old King James categories, the author and finisher of our faith. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith? The founder, the one who starts it, and also the perfecter, the one who brings it to completion. Well, one way that we could interpret this is to imagine Jesus now at the racetrack. And say Jesus is the the founder and the perfecter. He's the one who's at the start line. He's the one who says, go. 
run the race, and then it's Jesus who's waiting for us at the finish line, urging us forward. Cross the line into my embrace. Jesus then is our coach. Jesus is our biggest fan. He's the person cheering us on, and now the work is up to us. Jesus set the race in motion. Jesus called you to run. Jesus waits for you at the finish line, urging you forward and hoping you make it. He really wishes you well. That's one way we can think about it. But if you're my kind of runner, it's a pretty desperate way to think about it. I need more of a savior than that. If it's up to me to run the race, if Jesus is there at the start line with the gun, go, Mark, go. And he's there at the end, urging me forward. Somewhere along the way, I'm going to falter. I'm going to fail. I need more from Jesus than a coach. I need more from Jesus than, than, than a fan. There's another way to think about this idea of Jesus being the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it's to see Jesus as the one who's kind of in that faith from beginning to end. Not that he starts it and he finishes it, but that he's the one doing it all along the line. That he's the one running in and through us. I'm not saying we don't have to run because Jesus runs for us. I'm saying we do have to run and to see that it is Jesus running in and through us. I said we'd be going back to Philippians. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is what he's talking about. This idea of Jesus as perfecter of the faith. He's the one who began the work and he will bring it to completion. Words meant to give us confidence. Meant to, to, to have us believe that the race we're running is not a race in which we will falter. A race we will not finish because Jesus will bring to completion the work that he began in us. Paul bears more witness to this in uh, the next chapter of Philippians, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which doesn't make any logical sense, right? Either I'm doing it or God is doing it. Right? Either I'm doing the work and I deserve the credit for it, or God is doing it and I don't need to do anything. And a lot of times when you hear people like us say, God does all the work of salvation. God is the one who does it. It's not us. It's all grace. It's not your works. What you think you're hearing is this. God does it all. There's nothing you can do. Therefore, there's nothing you should do. Just sit back passively and allow God to do the work. It's all outside your control, so just sit there. But instead, what Paul is pointing to is something more complicated than that. Paul's saying that, that when the Bible calls you to obedience, when it calls you to repentance, that's a real call. God's not saying, I want you to obey, but of course I know you can't obey unless I pull your strings. Therefore, ignore what I just said. Not at all. All of the calls in our life to action are real calls. And at the same time, God comes in and says, but when you do this, I don't want you to think it's you. I don't want you to think that now you deserve something. I want you to recognize that the strength which, with, which with you ran was mine and mine alone. 
Did you choose Jesus? Yes. But it was the Holy Spirit working in you. It's not either or, it's both and. It's the same as when we look at the inspiration of Scripture, right? We say this is the Word of God. Well, you know, Paul writes the epistle. It's also the Word of Paul. Paul uses his own vocabulary, his own education, his own background. These epistles from Paul are from Paul. If you get an epistle from Peter, it's totally different. And yet, that very human thing that Paul freely did, that reflects his personality and identity, that was the Word of God, breathed by the Holy Spirit. If you can understand that, you can understand what we're talking about when we say, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. To recognize in our own actions the work and the movement of the Holy Spirit. In our own race, it is Jesus running in and through us. What that means is that the call to run is not a call to work. It is a call to follow Christ with everything you've got. To give the race everything. To set aside everything. To uh, embrace what the Puritans would have called self-forgetfulness. Which isn't to lose your identity. It's just to forget about yourself. And give your all to Christ. Invest yourself fully in what He's called you to do. You don't lose yourself in that. You gain yourself. To run Christ's race after Him, you also must endure sacrifice and shame. Jesus endured the cross, which was no easy thing. Like every sacrifice that the heroes of the faith made was was merely like a shadow of that great sacrifice that was to come. Jesus' cross was a real sacrifice. And our sacrifices merely echo it. But we give up merely echoes what He gave up. He endured the cross, and we too must endure sacrifices. And shame. There will be shame along the way. a lot of different ways you can react to shame. We've all felt it. One thing you can do, fearing shame, you can follow Christ discreetly or partially. The reality is, if if you go like too much into Jesus' corner, if you're like too committed to him too openly, uh, you will become a target for opposition. You will be a target for shame. Right? You will be espousing things, embracing things, talking openly about things that a lot of people increasingly think are hateful. And as a result of that, fearing that shame, we tend to embrace Christ selectively. Right? There are parts of Scripture we can still feel really passionate about because nobody's really made uncomfortable by those things. And so we find ourselves embracing the aspects of Christianity that are are sort of loving and and inclusive and and not controversial in championing those things. And the other stuff, the stuff that, that, that gets people's ire up, that we don't talk about so much. That we keep quiet about. Because we hope that we can avoid the shame. We're afraid that we will be shamed. 
So we embrace Christ when he's not objectionable to the world and we neglect the rest out of fear. That's one way you can respond to shame, but that's not the only way. There's another way you can glory in shame. When you glory in shame, you set your mind entirely on earthly things. This is Philippians 3 now. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They're not afraid of the shame. They glory in the shame. They embrace things that they ought to flee from. And a lot of times, that's how we are. That's, that's what our sin drives us to, to glory in our shame. And this is an experience we can all relate to. I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing my sermon, as I was thinking about this point, I had a lot of other people in mind when I thought about glorying in shame. I had a pretty good list of people not to mention um, because it would be rude. But uh, as I reflected on it, I started thinking about myself more, which always makes you uncomfortable, so I'm going to overshare. Um, yeah, sometimes you do that. Um, so I have a lot of sins, and I won't confess them all to you, but one sin that I think I can... I can uh, easily confess to is the sin of gluttony. Unlike some sins which are easy to conceal, gluttony, not so much. The fact is I don't run, but I do eat a lot more than I run. And it has an effect, which you can see before you. This is an easy sin to confess because it's a difficult sin to conceal unless you think, wow, that's really big of him to own up to his own failings. It's really not because I'm not ashamed of it. I tend to glory in my shame, which is what we tend to do. I tell myself, I ought to feel bad, but I don't feel bad. If anything, I, I, I look at my condition and I think to myself, this is the kind of thorn in the flesh you need when you are as prone to pride as you are. Like, if you didn't have this, what would restrain your, your overweening ego? I have no idea. I have no idea. And yet, this isn't an experience unique to me. Whatever like your sin is, whatever your lust is, whatever it is that gnaws at you, whatever weight it is that bears you down, the odds are the really the big one you've made peace with and you don't see it anymore. When we confess our sins, the sins that we really need to confess are the ones that don't occur to us because there's so much a part of who we are. And we've, we've made a sort of fortress of excuses around them. The irony is there's forgiveness for sin. The last thing in the world anyone who approaches the cross should feel the need to do is defend their sin when all you have to do is confess it. And yet we do this. We don't just make excuses for our sin, but we glory in the shame because our focus is on earthly things, earthly pleasures. Our focus is on the life we live now not on the life to come. We don't want to sacrifice what we have now to gain what is to come. But thank God Jesus Christ didn't think that way. That he was willing to sacrifice what he had now 
for the sake of good things to come. As Paul says again in Philippians 3, just a few verses down, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Jesus had to endure the sacrifice and the shame of the cross, and He despised that shame. He held it in contempt. When we saw, looking at the end of of Hebrews 11, the, the, the great sacrifices and hardships that were endured by those heroes of the faith, and there was that parenthetical remark, as we get this catalog of all their privations, we're told, of whom the world was not worthy, the world that inflicted so much crushing pain on these people wasn't worthy of them, the pain and the, the, the sacrifice and the shame of the cross wasn't worthy of the one who bore it. He held it in contempt. The idea that in order to go to the cross, he would have to humiliate himself and lower himself. He didn't struggle with it. It was beneath him. It was beneath him. He was intent on giving himself up for his people. We, too, on this race, must learn the gift of despising the shame. We fear it too much, the world's opinion. We embrace it and revel in it too much when the only approval that matters is the approval of Christ. Oh, Jesus is saying we have to sacrifice, that we have to endure. Maybe Jesus is asking too much of us. Maybe Jesus wants too much. He wants more than Sunday morning. I have a life. Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story that uh, I've taught for years, ever since I discovered it, because it illustrates something I think is essential about the nature of Christ. It's called Parker's Back. Uh, Parker, in the short story, is a man who is in love with tattoos. His whole body is covered in tattoos, and they are for him a, a striving towards some kind of transcendence. Like when he gets one, the thing that it symbolizes, that it pictures, in his own way, it points to some sort of higher world. His problem is he's married to a very religious lady. Uh, She thinks of herself as very Christ-like. She's actually quite a Pharisee. She hates these tattoos of Parker's. But he comes up with a plan. He decides that he's going to get a tattoo on his back of Jesus. Because she's religious, she can't object to that. Shows he doesn't understand how Phariseeism works very well. He's done essentially the most objectionable thing that he can do. But there's a scene in the story where he's going to the tattoo artist to get the tattoo. And uh, a book is brought out. And it's the book of all the, the pictures of Jesus, basically. You want a Jesus tattoo? Pick out your picture of Jesus from the book. And he starts flipping through the book. And it's arranged chronologically. So the deeper into the book you go, the older the pictures of Jesus are. So as he flips through the first pages, he's seeing like happy, smiling Jesus. He's seeing Jesus as a shepherd with little children around him, sort of cuddly and that sort of thing. But as he goes deeper into the book to these older ideas of Christ, the images become less familiar and less comforting. Until finally he's flipping through quickly until he hears a voice that tells him, go back. And he flips back to an image of what Flannery O'Connor describes as the flat, stern Byzantine Christ with the all-demanding eyes. This mosaic you can imagine of Jesus 
uh, Eastern Christian image of Jesus as ruler of the world. And he stares at you with those sort of big uh, eyes, imperious eyes looking down on you, all demanding eyes. And one of the things I love about that is that too often our idea of Christ and who he is, we think of Christ as, as the being who exists for our sake. That Jesus' selflessness is basically uh, an expression of his desire to do whatever it takes to make you happy and fulfilled. Like nobody wants what you want for you more than Jesus wants it for you. Like your dreams matter more to Jesus than they do to you. And yet, the Christ who calls to us in Scripture calls us to sacrifice. He doesn't call us to contentment, fulfillment, all your dreams fulfilled. He calls you to turn your back on those things and to follow him, to take up your cross and follow him. He is all demanding. Does Jesus want too much of us? Well, he does want everything. If that seems like too much to you, then I guess the answer is yes. But Jesus wants everything. There's no aspect of your life, there's no corner of your life that he's willing to say, you know what? I'm good. I won't go there. Keep it. He wants it all. He wants it all. And realizing that, I think it's important to see not just the race that Christ ran, but the reason he ran it. As important as I think it is to recapture this idea of Christ as as this all-demanding Savior who expects everything from us, I want you to see that it's not the reason why he runs the race. Jesus doesn't run the race because he's really stern. He doesn't run the race because he loves the idea of suffering. And he just thinks everybody's too soft and comfortable, and I want to harden them up. I want to toughen these people up by making them endure pain. That's not it at all. Jesus doesn't run because he's stern. He doesn't run because he's demanding. He doesn't run out of a sense of duty. Jesus runs for joy. For the joy that was set before him, he ran. For the joy that was set before him, he endured what he endured. For the joy, for the reward, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. For the joy to have been been the redeemer of his people. To have rescued a people from every nation and every tribe and presented them whole and intact on that final day to his Father. This is the joy that led him to do what he did. To run as he ran. He was motivated by joy. And if we are motivated by anything else, we're not doing it right. If your discipleship is motivated out of a sense of fear, these are the things I have to do to keep God happy with me, you're not doing it right. If it's motivated by a sense of duty, I want to be a good Christian. This is what a good Christian does. That's not it. There's just one motivation, one thing that should drive you, and it is joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just call you to sacrifice. It doesn't just call you to deprivation and endurance. It calls you, first and foremost, to joy. And the joy is the thing that makes all the other stuff bearable. God's not calling you to suffer because God likes suffering. God's saying you'll have to endure some suffering for the joy that is set before you. 
God does not intend to end his story, to end his world in destruction, in death, in pain. It's going to end in joy. It's going to end in feasting, in celebration. That's what's set before us, and it provides a context so that what we must endure as we run does not overwhelm us, doesn't become too large in our eyes, because the joy set before us is bigger than what we have to endure. All the witnesses, that great cloud of witnesses who went before us, those heroes of the faith, they endured out of joy. Because they saw the joy that was to come. Moses, who was given the law, strove to keep the law, not out of works righteousness, but out of joy. It was always joy that we were called to. And what is the joy? It's to be one with Jesus Christ. Way back in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, there's this fascinating moment in the history of the people of God where they've been brought back out of exile. They've endured a long wilderness of suffering. They've been cast out of the promised land and they have wandered. And now they're brought back. And one of the things they rediscover is they're picking up the pieces of the life of that covenant people. They, they find the law. And they start reading the law. They read scripture and they read what was revealed. And it turns out that over time, over exile, a lot of the stuff had been forgotten. A lot of the reason why had been lost. And as... The men read the books of the law to the people as they were assembled and they read that. The reaction of those people was understandable. They read what God had commanded and they recognized, oh, we haven't been living this way. And they grieved. They wept. They wept. This was the worst news they could have gotten. Reunited, out of exile, coming home, and now to have the word of God proclaimed to them and to realize how far short they fell. But the way Nehemiah and the priests reacted was not what you might think. They read that law and the people came at her conviction and they, they, they wailed and they wept and they grieved. Their leaders didn't say, yeah, good, you should be crying. You should, you terrible sinners. Look how far short you've fallen. They said to them, don't mourn, don't grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In fact, not only did they tell them, don't weep, don't mourn, they said, feast. We should have a feast. They saw their inadequacy. They saw all the things that they had let slide, all the things they had forgotten. And it seemed natural to them to grieve. But the word they got was no. Celebrate. Feast. Eat and drink. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not you. It's not your strength that finishes the race. It's not your strength that leads to endurance. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And everyone who lacks strength, all of you who lack strength, all of you who know you can't do it, all of you who know you can't make the lap, let alone finish the race, and you need something, you need strength in order to endure You're not going to find it in better rule-keeping. You're going to find it in the Lord, in the joy that He gives. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Anyone who's ever needed strength, God provides it, but there's only one source. It is the joy of the Lord, the joy that is set before us. That vision of good things to come is our strength. Jesus says to us, do not grieve. Go and feast. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 